I think for those of you that are familiar with the book of Romans, or even some of the history behind the discussions and debates that have you know, centered around the book of Romans, you know what he's talking about. The book of Romans has been a lightning rod in the church, seemingly ever since uh, the church began. You want to see pastors fight each other? Just have them preach Romans. And yet at the same time, if you want to see people's lives changed by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, just preach Romans. Just preach the book of Romans. Over the last 2,000 years, I would argue there might not be a more influential book literally on the face of the earth than the book of Romans. And I really mean that. If you go all the way back to the 4th and 5th centuries, probably the most influential theologian and philosopher other than Jesus and Paul is a guy by the name of Augustine. Now, you might not know Augustine, but you have felt Augustine's influence if you are in the church. See, Augustine, he has probably had more influence on on Christian orthodoxy than just about anybody else, like I said, outside of Jesus and Paul. He cemented the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in a way that we still feel it today. And Augustine, he was a man who was converted when he was crushed under the weight of his own sin and miraculously pointed to Romans chapter 13. And through that section of scripture, he was converted, he was transformed, and the world has never been the same. You fast forward a thousand years, and you find Martin Luther, the great reformer, the 16th century, who we owe so much to in recovering that gospel, that doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And you see Luther, Calvin, the great reformers, what they did is they pointed back to Augustine. Okay, they quoted Augustine probably more than anybody else. And in recovering that biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, Martin Luther He became the great reformer, but he was not always a great reformer. Instead, he was converted. He was transformed by God when he finally made sense out of the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. You see, the righteousness of God, it angered Luther. As a young man, he despised the righteousness of God because he he saw it as condemnation. He knew he was not righteous. But through Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he came to understand that the righteousness of God is given as a gift through faith in Christ. And the world has never been the same. You know, Pastor Cole, our very own pastor here, he was actually brought to Christ when he saw this image on his television screen. That's right. Romans 1, 16 on the eye black struck a chord with Cole's heart, and he was transformed, and the world has never been the same. The point is this. If you trace back through church history, there is probably no other book that has had as much influence on the most influential people guarding the most important gospel doctrines than the book of Romans. And as a church, I am excited for us 
to dig into this treasure that we have. Now, we're going to introduce the book of Romans today by addressing two crucial questions about this book, okay? So just two questions to get us started here through the first seven verses of the book of Romans. And those two questions are this. Number one, who wrote Romans? And number two, to whom and why did he write it? Who wrote it? And to whom and why did he write it? And by answering these questions, I think it's going to set us up to rightly understand the book of Romans together so that God can really use this book and our study of his word to shape our hearts, to ground us in the gospel, and to knit us together as a church family in love and in service and in prayer with one another. Okay, so question number one, who wrote Romans? Who wrote it? Now, if you want to get technical about it, the answer is actually a little bit surprising. The technical answer to this question is a guy named Tertius. Tertius. And that doesn't become clear until the very end of the book of Romans. But in Romans 16, you hit this little nugget in Romans 16, 22, where all of a sudden, see, you get a little bit caught off guard. There are all these final greetings. And then Romans 16, 22, all of a sudden this guy pops in who we have not heard from at all up to this point. He says, I, Tertius, wrote this letter, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you're like, wait a minute, what in the world? Who is that? Where did he come from? And we don't know a ton about him. But apparently he's the guy who wrote the book of Romans. Now, who is it that we actually associate with writing the book of Romans? Paul, the apostle Paul, okay? And there's a reason why we do that. We heard it in verse 1. When we started the book, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 starts with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He says, my name's Paul. And I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm writing you this letter. So what is going on in Romans 16? Why does Tertius all of a sudden boldly claim authorship of the uh, letter to the Romans? Well, if you were to ask the question, who put pen to paper and actually wrote the letter to the Romans? Technically, the right answer would be Tertius. He was a scribe that Paul used to actually pen the book of Romans. But who is the letter really coming from? Whose thoughts, whose ideas, and whose God-given authority are coming out in this letter to the Romans? And the answer to that question is the Apostle Paul. It's the Apostle Paul's thoughts, words, and God-given authority coming out and being delivered to the church in Rome. And I want to take just a few minutes here and get us familiar with this man, the Apostle Paul, okay? And we're not going to take the time this morning to walk through his conversion story. If you're interested in the Apostle Paul's conversion story, you can flip to Acts chapter 9, and you can work through Acts chapter 9 this this week on your own if you'd like. But there are a few key details about the life of Paul that we're going to focus in on this morning. And this is incredibly important for us to understand if we're going to understand the answer to that next question, to whom and why did he write the letter to the Romans? So, three key facts about Paul. Fact number one, Paul was a Roman citizen. So, the letter of Romans is written by Paul, 
the Roman citizen. And he was a Roman citizen by birth. And this is something that comes out uh, not in his letter to the Romans, but in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, fairly late in Paul's life. During his ministry in Jerusalem, he's being persecuted for preaching the gospel. He is about to be beaten. And in Acts chapter 22, it says this. Verse 25, as they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported it to his commander saying, what are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. Speaking of Paul, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, well, I bought my citizenship for a large amount of money. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. So Paul was a citizen of Rome. Okay. Now, even though he was a Roman citizen by birth, he had never actually been to Rome, at least not that we can understand or gather. He did not plant the church in Rome. He also had never even yet visited the church in Rome. At least that's what he tells us. But he was a Roman citizen. Not only was he a Roman citizen by birth, but he was also a Jew. So Paul was born a Roman citizen. He was also, by birth, a Jew. You look back at Acts 21. Paul says, I am a Jew, a man from Tarsus of Cilicia. And he wasn't just like any Jew. Okay, Paul was not just a a, a random... he, He was a pretty big deal among the Jews. Philippians 3, verse 5, it says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which that's good, that was commanded, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born among Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. He says, I was part of like the most elite, strictest sect of the Jews, and I was born into it through the tribe of Benjamin, And before he came to Christ, he was trained by one of the greatest rabbis of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Okay, again in Acts 22, he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So Paul was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. He he was an extremely well-educated and knowledgeable Jew. And all of that's going to come out in his writings, which we will see. He had an incredible grasp on the scriptures. So he was a Roman citizen. He was also a Jew. But he, beyond that, he was an apostle sent specifically to the Gentiles. So Paul is like the original Swiss army knife, okay? Born a Roman, he's a Roman, he's a Jew, he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he also played fullback for the Iowa State Cyclones, he's an incredible man. Okay, just a melting pot. You go on a little bit further in Acts 22, Paul, he's giving his testimony to this angry mob in Jerusalem, and he explains to them how he is a Jew who was trained by Gamaliel. But then he says, after he was converted, Jesus explicitly sent him to the Gentiles to preach Christ among the Gentiles. He said to me, go, because 
he, meaning Jesus, this is Paul speaking, said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Jesus sends Paul, the Roman, the highly trained Jew, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is exactly how Paul introduces himself in the letter of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul said this, We have received grace and apostleship through him, through Jesus, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name, including yourselves who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. Paul was a Roman by birth. He was a Jew by birth. And he was an apostle to the Gentiles and he establishes that his, his apostolic authority came from Christ. And all of that is actually very important to understand as we then turn to look at our second question, to whom and why did Paul write? Why did Paul, the Roman Jew apostle to the Gentiles, write? And who is he writing to specifically in Rome. And if you want to boil down the difficulty of interpreting the book of Romans, or where the tension exists in interpreting Romans, I would say much of it comes down to this question Who is this for? And why is he writing it? And today, what we're going to do on the front end of our study of Romans is we're going to understand that question in a broad sense as we look at the letter to the Romans in totality. Okay, We're going to have to answer that question in specific sections or specific passages of the text as well. But I think it's very helpful for, for us to understand just on the outset, in totality, who Paul's writing to and why he's writing to them, if we're going to understand the right framework to see the book of Romans through. Okay? So first, who is the book of Romans written to? And he says in verse 7, he, he tells us, To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. That means Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to believers, to the church in Rome. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a church that Paul is writing to, or the churches, believers in Rome. But there's a very important detail that you need to understand about the church in Rome, and that is that it's a church that has both Jews and Gentiles among them. Okay? The church in Rome was probably a majority Gentiles, but there are certainly Jews and Gentiles alike in the church. And there was real friction in the churches in Rome between the Jewish and Gentile believers that Paul is writing to. And we see some of the disputes between the Jewish and Gentile believers coming out in the writings of Paul. Okay, so if you flip ahead to Romans chapter 14, Paul says, One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. He's highlighting a dispute that's going on about food. There, there, there's, there's friction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers over food. The Jews, they would have believed that there were certain dietary restrictions that was carried over from the Old Testament. The Gentile believers, they were like, hey, anything goes, eat whatever you want. And there was friction among them. There wasn't just friction over food there. There was also friction 
over special days. In verse, uh, Romans 14, verse 5, one person considers one day to be above another day. Well, somebody else considers every day to be the same. The Jewish believers, they would have held that certain days were more significant than others. Carried in from their Old Testament system. The Gentile believers, they wouldn't have had that. They would have believed every day is just the same. And there are these disputes going on in the church that put friction between Jewish and Gentile believers in all kinds of issues. And they're causing significant divides and tension in the church. And so Paul's writing to the church in Rome, but more specifically, he's writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome who were having significant troubles loving one another, honoring one another, getting along. And he is writing to them to unify Jewish and Gentile believers in the Roman church under Christ. Paul, the Roman Jew apostle to the Gentiles, he's writing to Roman Jews and Gentiles to unite them in the church under Christ in a way that he was incredibly uniquely qualified to do so. He wrote to knit them together, Jews and Gentiles, as one family through Christ. We are all God's people, one family, by grace, through faith, in Christ. And the way that Paul writes to unify the church is by spending the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans building the theological case for the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles under Christ in the church, one family. And then, starting in chapter 12, after he establishes our unity in the faith under the righteousness, or in the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, what he does starting in chapter 12 is he seeks to practically unite the church by filling the pages with with instructions that flow from his theological case about how the church is to love one another and be knit together as a family. And he starts in on that theological case right away in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're going to walk our way slowly through those first seven verses. If you've got your Bible with you, you can walk through it with me. And what we're going to see is Paul, right away, what he's doing is he's laying the groundwork for the theological case he's going to then draw out over the course of the first 11 chapters. Okay, spelling out how it is that we really are one family, one people in Christ. It says this, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, which he promised Long ago, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Just pause there and think about what Paul is doing. Okay? He's very intentionally saying, Hey, look, I am called out as an apostle, as one who is sent to preach the gospel. But do you know where that gospel was promised? Long ago, all the way back through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he is grounding it. In the same one story that both the Jews and the Gentiles need to be anchored in and familiar with. He says the gospel didn't just come out of left field. It isn't like chapter 2, story number 2 of God's plan of salvation 
for people in the world. He says, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's one great story. It is one great plan of redemption. And it was promised through the prophets in the scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Again, he's saying, hey, one story, one gospel, one people. He's rooting the descendancy of Christ in David on purpose. He says, look, it, it is all the same story, the same plan. And who has been declared to be the powerful son of God. By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles or all the nations on behalf of his name, including yourselves who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling. Verse 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, and call the saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is setting up. He's setting up to build a theological case anchored in the scriptures, anchored in the Old Testament, anchored in the prophets, anchored in David. He is setting up to preach the one true gospel with great clarity, so that the church would be united and knit together under Christ to the glory of God. And then he's going to get to chapter 12. He does that through the first 11 chapters. Then he's going to get to chapter 12, and he's going to give us some incredibly helpful practical instructions on how it is that we can walk in unity with one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, he says. Take the lead in honoring one another. Romans 13, don't owe anything, anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Romans 14, he's talking to them about their disputes over food and days. And he says, let us no longer judge one another. Decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. According to Christ Jesus. And why is it ultimately that Paul is driving so strongly towards unity in the church, towards love for one another, honoring one another, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Verse 8, for I say, listen to this. That Christ became a servant of the circumcised. He says Christ is for the Jew on behalf of God's truth. To confirm the promises to the fathers. And so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Paul was writing to unify Jewish and Gentile believers in the church under Christ to the glory of God. And he gave us 11 of the most incredible, theologically rich chapters to do it. And he closes with five of the most helpful and unifying, practical chapters of Scripture. 
And as somebody, he does it as somebody who is incredibly and uniquely qualified to do so. Now, here's a question I want you to contemplate. What do you think God wants to do in our church through the book of Romans? I want you to think about this. What do you think God wants to do in our church through the book of Romans? Here's what I'm praying he would do. Just like he used Paul's letter to knit together the church in Rome under Christ to the glory of God, my prayer is that God would use our study of the book of Romans to knit us together under Christ to the glory of God. That God would be knitting our hearts together as a church family under Christ in the gospel to the glory of God. That's what I think he wants to do in us through the book of Romans. Not tear us apart. Not divide us over the theological landmines of Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10. But knit us together as a church family under Christ to the glory of God. And you can join me in praying for that as we study Romans together. Now, just to close today, I want to give you just one practical application, okay? And it's not necessarily an application that comes from our text this morning, but it's something that I just want to challenge you in as we start Romans together. Here it is. Read the book of Romans for yourself. Read it. Get into God's Word in the book of Romans for yourselves. Over the next several weeks, just read it. And if you finish it, read it again. Okay, read it a couple of times. It it is deep enough and rich enough that it will take, I think, a couple of reads for us to really begin even to deeply understand it. And if you already have a regular habit of reading God's Word each day, uh, that's great. Just take five or ten minutes and sprinkle in some of Romans in your time. That way, when we come together, we're ready to feast on the Word. Our, our minds are in the right space. We, we, we are coming in with a context of what we're going to be diving into together. Okay, our, our minds will be sharp and ready to feast on the Word of God. So if you already have a habit of reading God's Word every day, that is awesome. Just put five or ten minutes into Romans, okay? Work your way through it and maybe work your way through it a couple of times over the next few months. If you don't yet have a regular habit of actually reading God's Word, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Use the book of Romans as a springboard to begin to read God's Word every day. God's people They need to be in the Word of God, hearing from God through His Word and through prayer every day. So just make a commitment. Okay, use Romans as a springboard. And maybe find a buddy, somebody in your community group, for example, who you can just do that with. So if you don't yet have a habit, or if you've gotten out of the habit... Of daily being in God's word. Which is not the same as having the habit of reading God's word. I used to read God's word daily. is not the same as I do read God's word daily. Okay, if you've gotten out of the habit. Just use the book of Romans as a springboard. To get back into that habit. 
And then find somebody to help you stay accountable, okay? Start to read it every day, and then just text somebody. Text somebody in your CG. Hey, I read this today. Here's what I was encouraged by. One quick thought. Boom. There it is. And in this way, I think God will use the book of Romans in even greater ways in our hearts. Okay, Martin Luther, he said this about the book of Romans. Nor Luther, the great reformer, the one who was converted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said this, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. Now, just pause there for what it's worth. I don't think I would quite say it the same way. Um, I do love his enthusiasm, though. <laughs> he says this, It is worthy, listen carefully, okay? It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it, the book of Romans, word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Now, aren't you glad that Martin Luther isn't your pastor? <laughs> so I'm, I'm letting, I'm letting you all off easy. <laughs> all I'm saying is just get in the word, get in the word, be studying it on your own. Let it sink into your soul and day by day, be transformed by the word of God. Let it impact your heart. Let the word of God rest in your mind and on your thoughts. I'm asking that you would prioritize real time in God's word every day, both for your own sake and for the sake of the church. And here's what I would say. A church whose members do not make time to be in the word of God, to be in prayer, to invest real time on a daily basis, with the Lord, I think we'll have a very hard time being knit together as a real family in Christ. There are way too many distractions, discouragements, and opportunities for divisions in our lives to actually be knit together if we will not spend time with Jesus. And one great way to spend time on a regular basis with the Lord is just to get in his word. And so my hope, my prayer throughout our study of Romans is that God would be using our, our time together to knit our hearts together with one another in the church and also just to transform us and to root us individually in the gospel of grace. Okay, To knit us together in love under Christ.